as I said, either by death, absent from the body, present with the Lord, or being caught up. The, the thing is that we don't know when we're being caught up. You know, uh, we don't know the day or the hour in which that's going to take place. Um, I am going to give you a, a little window to it uh, because I think Scripture gives us just that little window and yet it's still vague. And there's those areas that are still vague when it comes to Scripture. But God does allow us to be pre-warned. And last week we talked about the warning and so forth that God has given us. And we need to recognize that we need to take those warnings seriously because it is that thing of being ready to go. And Scripture tells us to be ready, to be awake, to be alert, to be clothed right, rightfully in this garment of salvation and righteousness and sanctification of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, people who have accepted Jesus, they're going home. People who have not accepted Jesus is going to do what? Stay here. Now, you need to understand, what God is going to look at is not so much the mouth, but he's going to look at the heart. The mouth can be deceitfully wicked, and who can know it? But God, the heart, it can deceive us. And oftentimes what we think, what we're hearing from people in, with their mouth, we think is coming from their heart, when a lot of times it's only coming from where? Their head, but it's not coming from the heart. And the heart can be deceitfully wicked. And God says, I know your heart. I know your heart better than you do. And God's going to look at our hearts. For many will say, Lord, Lord, and what? Know him not. Never known him. And yet they will say it. But those who have accepted Jesus Christ are going to heaven. And this is the issue. Before the battle of Armageddon. And the question is, why Armageddon? And I hope I can show it in scripture of why. In Revelation 6, 16, 15, we talked about it last week, where he says, he comes like a thief. A thief doesn't give notice of when he's coming. No. But all of us who own a home know it is a possibility that somebody may break what? Into our homes. That's one of the reasons we have quote-unquote, guardian alarm or AT&T alarm or we lock the door when we leave. In that little part of our mind, the expectation is somebody may what? Try to break in. So we want them to do something other than just open the door and walk in. So there's that little anticipation that, yeah, a thief could come. And the Lord says... Boy, I'm going to come as a thief in the night. But he tells us again, stay awake. He tells us, keep your clothing on, your salvation, the righteousness of Christ, that sanctification. And then when you go down to Revelation 16, 16, it says the kings are gathered, or the nations are gathered, because the kings there represent nations. And they are gathered for the battle of Armageddon. So they're getting ready for it. Hasn't happened. Getting ready for it. They're meeting for it. 
They're preparing for it. Then in Revelation 16, 17, the seventh angel pour out his bowl. And it says, it is done. It is done. It is a word similar to what Jesus says on the cross. It's finished. It's finished. It's finished. He says, now, this is done. It's over with. And the great city, as it goes on in that seven bowl, said is divided, and we will talk more about that later on. It is divided or split into three parts. Now, there are three parts of a nation or any type of real government that all three have to be wholesome, have to be a real part, have to be there in order for that nation to really be a healthy nation or a nation at all. And we'll talk about those three parts when we get there because it says it's divided between three parts. Babylon the Great is given the wine of the fury of his wrath, it is stated. So when you get into that verse 19, is it? He says, The great city split into three parts, and the city of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. With the wine that is filled with the fury of his wrath. Now, when you look at Revelations in this section, there's only two great battles that Christ is involved in. Though there are many battles starting from the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. There's only two battles that Christ himself is really involved in. One battle takes place prior to the millennium. The other battle takes place after the thousand years, the thousand-year reign of Christ after the millennial. Those two battles, Christ personally is involved in. He's involved in. And one of the things you want to do, just for yourself, is to put those two battles there and and look at the difference of those two battles. Who's involved in those two battles? Now, in Revelation 19, 11 to 21 is the first one. It's before the millennium. And it's that battle that takes place. And in that battle, you have the beast and the false prophet. They're involved. But before that battle can really take place, because the wrath of God is going to be poured out at this battle, somebody got to be taken out of here called the church or the believers in Christ. Now, only in the first battle is God's wrath mentioned. If you really take note of that, in the battle before the millennial, only then is God's wrath mentioned. In the second battle that takes place after the thousand-year reign, the word wrath is never mentioned. 
is never mentioned. But in that first battle, it is mentioned. Only in the first battle is the beast and the false prophet mentioned. They are not mentioned in the second battle after the millennial. But only in the first battle they are mentioned. Why? Because in the first battle, it tells us that they are thrown into the lake of fire. That they are thrown into the lake of fire. Now, there's a word also that we want to just look at just for a moment because it's important to be able to understand, I think, some of what is taking place. And um, with these two battles that Jesus is involved in, one, he has, boy, yeah, the beast and the false prophet, Babylon that he's dealing with. But after the thousand-year reign, when Satan is let loose for a little while again, and another battle takes place, you're not dealing with Babylon. You're not dealing with the beast. You're not dealing with the false prophet. Study it out. See the two differences with those two battles that take place and who's present there. Now, let's go back to this very first battle just for a moment. Um, you and I need to understand that the nations are gathered to a place called Armageddon. The two great victories that took place there and two great disasters that took place there. And they are there in Judges, but we need to understand that, boy, Barak, he defeated the Canaanites there. And Gideon defeated the Mennonites there. But the disasters were that that's where Saul died and Josiah died. Now, understanding that in this greatness that is there, there's a word that also comes out that is very slim, similar to Armageddon. And it's the little city and so forth that is there. Armageddon located in the northern part of Israel, also known as Megiddo or the valley of Megiddo, or the city of Megiddo. It comes from a Hebrew root word meaning to cut off. To cut off. That in Armageddon, there's going to be a cutting off. There's going to be a cutting off of Babylon. Babylon the Great is what? Fallen. Not to be mentioned anymore. Though it has been mentioned, it has enacted itself in many different ways in erroneous teaching from its very beginning with Nimrod to this very end to where God says it's cut off. That in the millennium time there will not be this false teaching. There will not be this great thing of Babylon with all of its heresies and so forth. In the millennium period you will choose, those who are going through that millennium period will choose either to believe in Jesus and they will see him or not to believe, period. It won't be because of any deceitfulness that Satan brings around. 
Because Satan is now locked up for a thousand years. So you can't blame Satan that Satan tricked you or Satan deceived or Satan did this or did that. It's going to be your own heart. It will be your own heart. Even as it is right now, it's your own heart that you really choose to follow and believe. It's your own heart. Now, there's that cutting off of the beast. There's the cutting off of the false prophet. There's the cutting off of Babylon the Great. You don't hear them anymore. They're not mentioned in the second battle at all. Now, before that first battle takes place, remember it means a cutting off or it means a great slaughter. Now, because of Christians, you need to understand that, boy, you're going to be removed before this great battle ever takes place. Now, somebody is asking a question, well, what is chapter 17 and 18 about? 17 and 18 is telling us how Babylon the Great is going to be dealt with. How the philosophy and the teaching and the system of Babylon is going to be dealt with. Then when you get into 19, turn with me just for a moment to chapter 19. When you look at verse 11, now starts the battle of Armageddon, in a sense. Come up with me into verse 20. Let's go to 19. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider of the horse and his name and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. When you pick up at 11, you begin to identify who this rider is. It's Jesus Christ, none other than Jesus Christ. But this is the first battle. Babylon is totally destroyed. The beast, the false prophet, is cast into the lake of fire, thrown there, and that's where they're at and not to be heard of anymore. The believers in Jesus, however, they're raptured. Now, you say, Pastor, where does that really take place? Just follow with me a little bit. Go back to Revelation 16 and pick up again in verse 15. Because something has to happen because of what we are promised. It says, Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake 
and keeps clothes and keep his clothes with him, so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that is Hebrew is called Armageddon. As you start into the seventh fold, now it begins to enact what's going to take place in Armageddon. That the wrath of God now is going to be poured out. Now, what I want you to take note of for a moment exactly what it says in verse 19. Come down to verse 19 with me. The great city split into three parts and the city of the nation collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Now go over into chapter 19 again with me. Come down into verse 15 with me. Out of the mouth comes a sharp sword with which he strikes down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He threads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. In both places you have the word wrath that's going to take place in this battle. So the Christian at this point has to either be caught up or he's already caught up. He's gone. Now, why? Go to Thessalonians 5.9 with me. 1 Thessalonians 5.9. Because this is the promise that God has given unto us. And um, we have to understand this and we can't really explain how the rapture takes place. I don't believe there's going to be a lot of confusion about it. I think it's something that's just going to be done because my God is not a God of confusion. That is going to take place. People will know, yes, you're gone, but I don't believe sometimes how we dramatize things, that there's going to be planes falling out the air, that there's going to be all kind of car wrecks and so forth. No, uh, I think God's going to do it but it's not going to be all this confusion and so forth, sometimes as we explain. But we try to dramatize this the best we can. But in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, he says that there's something about us as believers. For God did not appoint us to what? Suffer what? Wrath. There's that word again. I think that is a key word that we cannot get away from. Dr. Lovegerson says you have to, as he said, you fall or rest on that word wrath. Because that's what we are appointed to. We're appointed not to go through his wrath. It is certain that if you are a believer in Christ, you will not suffer the wrath of God. Why? That took place on Calvary for you. So that is gone. That is gone. I'm not worried about God's wrath and that we're going to be out of here before that battle of Armageddon ever takes place because I'm not appointed to his wrath. Wrath is, is only in the first battle. It is never mentioned in the second battle. Only in that first battle with Armageddon. And Armageddon, Megiddo, that meaning is cut off. <laughs> 
or removed. <laughs> removed. The beast is removed. Babylon's removed. The false prophets removed. The church is removed. It's gone. It's gone. Now, Christians are removed from his wrath. But we're not just removed to just go to heaven. Because, see, we are appointed, and this is one of the things that I think that is going to take place, that before judgment ever happens here on earth, and Armageddon is the final judgment part from that church age, in a sense, all the way back. The other battle that takes place after the millennium is not a battle that's going all the way back and through the church age. It's a battle that takes place only with those folks in the millennial period. Big difference. Armageddon is taking place over all that has had proceeded from church age and back. The millennium, the battle after the millennium, only takes place with those during the millennium period. So you got a huge separation there with those two battles. Now, go with me to 1 Peter 4.17. Because I believe this is one of the keys that we have to understand. Before God ever really judged this world, he puts a principle, I think, that is very much prevalent. And, and that principle is simply this. Before I really judge that unbeliever, I got to first judge who? The believer. Before I really deal with this group, I got to deal with this group. Hey, my own. I got to deal with my own children first. So, in 1 Peter 4.17, he simply says it in this way. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. That's the judgment seat of Christ. That we're going to be judged for what we've done in the body. Because, see, we're not appointed to God's wrath. Because we're not fighting against God. Not that we don't believe God's truth. But part of the problem with Christians is this. We don't uphold God's truth and we don't perform God's truth. God said that he has given us everything that is necessary for us to live godly lives. God has given me everything necessary to be a godly father. God has given me everything that is necessary for me to be a wise steward. God has given me everything that's necessary to be a good husband. God has given me everything that is necessary to be a good citizen. God has given me everything that is necessary for this life. He's already given it to me. I have to appropriate it. I have to be willing to accept it. I have to be willing to acknowledge His truth is for my goodness. There's not something that is against me. It has to do with my thinking. Okay? And what God does when He speaks about in Scripture, renewing my mind, 
That's what God wants to do. Why? Because we've been taught by demons. We've been taught by a world that is basically and somewhat owned by Satan. For he is the God of this world. He's the prince of this world. And he takes his philosophy from the time we're born and instill it in us. You don't have to teach a child to steal. A child will just see it and they want it and they'll go what? No matter who owns it. They don't ask that they can play with somebody else's toy. They just go what? Get it. They don't ask if they can have this or that. If their eyes see it, they just go what? Get it. They have to be taught how to restrain themselves and to ask permission if they can use this or they can use that. And that whole process is that process of being taught. My kids were taught. When they got in my car, they didn't touch a thing. The one reason I taught them that, because if they got in somebody else's car, they didn't act like it was whose car. They didn't touch the sound. They didn't touch visors. They didn't touch the windows coming down. Before they did anything, they asked. And watch young people today. They don't ask. They what? They just act. They just do. They don't ask. And sometimes when you don't ask, you will do something and it messes everything up. All because you did not what? Ask. One thing when little Mark's working with me, what's our rule? Ask. Don't hide. And see, when he's in the store, he thinks he's a grown man. He just takes off. And I tell him, when he's with Grandpa, you stay right here where Grandpa can see you. Because if you're in the next aisle, how many of y'all saw that man trying to grab that teenage girl out the store? But he feels, boy, getting a little he-man by himself, you know. know. The old folks used to say you get the smell in yourself and you think you, you know. And, and he just wants to take off. In our culture and society, you can't do that. Because Mark wouldn't know what to do with another grown man grabbing hold of him. He can yell, he can scream. But if, if the right man slap him right enough and tell him to be quiet, he won't even scream. But yet it's this freedom that we just think that we automatically, what, possess or have. That a child has to understand because really what they don't understand is this, is all the dangers that are out here. And that's what the parents are for. To help protect from the danger. And what God says is this here simply. Boy, judgment is going to first begin where at? In my house. And what are we going to give answer of? Of how we have received the training of the Holy Spirit. How we have conducted ourselves according to God's word. And he says, boy, 
you're going to come before the judgment seat of Christ. See, and now the only way you can really get before the judgment seat of Christ, all Christians, is if the rapture has taken place. That we're all there. That we're all there. Now, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. Because, see, we're all going to show up there, and we all got to give an answer for this thing. Now, put your finger in 2 Corinthians 5, and go to Matthew chapter 12, I think. Matthew 12, 36. And hold on to 2 Corinthians 5. He says in 36. Now, somebody may say, well, this is foolish. This is nonsense. Because I say things without thinking about them. I speak without saying One of the things that we have lost in our culture and society today is the power of words. Scripture says words have the ability to encourage, to build up, or words have also the what? To set a city on fire to destroy or discourage. Now, listen to what he says here. He says in 36, But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word that they have spoken. Every unkind word. Every word that has degraded, every word that has torn down, every word. He said, you're going to have to give an account for that. So in 2 Corinthians 5.10 it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him, For the things done while in the body, whether what? Good or bad. Now, there are two things that has to take place before this war takes place. Now, understand this also. We move from a time-oriented environment to a timeless environment. We need to somehow, we can't really associate, we can't really even begin to imagine that what it is to be someplace that don't go by time. Here, boy, if you're late, you're late. And how we know that you're late? Not that you were a half hour late or 15 minutes late or 10 minutes late. You're two seconds behind the time in which you were supposed to be there. Therefore, the only way you know that you're really going to be on time If you are there before what? (laughs) Before the time. (laughs) Anything after 12 o'clock. Anything after 9 o'clock. Anything after reporting to work after 8 o'clock. And you're supposed to be there at 8 o'clock. See, 8.01, you are what? Late. In heaven, no time. So we move from a timeless thing that we're used to operating in to a no time. 
type situation. So two things that has to take place with this thing of Armageddon that has been assigned to the church, per se. One, the judgment seat of Christ, and the other is the Lord's dinner that we're all invited to. The Lamb's Supper that we're all invited to. Remember that he said he would not drink of the fruit of the vine until he drinks it anew with us where at. Yeah. And, and see, that's a promise directly to the church as he instituted something that was going to take place in the church that did not really take place in Old Testament, nor do we see it taking place any time after the millennial issue. Okay. But it's something that takes place during what we call this church age. And he says he would drink it anew with us. And at the Lamb's Supper, that's the time in which he will drink it anew with us. As we celebrate what has taken place. Those are the two things that take place. The judgment seat of Christ that we have to be at. And the Lamb's Supper. Now, he says he's going to judge that which is good or bad. Now turn with me to Malachi 3.16. One thing God is, is an excellent record keeper. And uh, he makes no mistakes in his keeping of his records. 3.16, he says, Then those who have feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A stroll of remembrance. What kind of stroll? What kind of book? A book of remembrance. It, now, let's understand something. God and who he is, he don't need the books. But in Revelations, he talks about the books also being open. But he's saying to us, He's going to keep up account of everything we do. He keeps it an account. Let's, 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 let's illustrate it. I'm going down the street, and boy, I see this nice little miniskirt, and my head follows that miniskirt. Hey. Hey. Now, if the head does this, it's in trouble. But if the head does this, oh, that's a beautiful creation of Jesus. Put it in the right perspective. See? And sometimes you have to say, boy, that thing is really nice. And my Lord owns everything. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And my God really wants me to have that. He'll give it to me. When I was buying my bike, I, I told the salesman, two things I have to do. One, I have to pray about it and see if I get permission from God to buy it. And secondly, I have to ask my wife. And if my wife says no, then I won't get it. And the way I'll know that the Lord said that I can get it if it's under this amount. 
And the other way would be that my wife says yes. Hey. I said, so you're going to have to be willing to hold it for me. Hey. Somebody would say, well, couldn't you just go ahead and get it? Couldn't you make that decision? <laughs> no, because what I have doesn't belong to me. It belongs to who? To the Lord. So I always need to bring him into the picture. Number two, I can never do a large item. If I expect Elaine not to do a large item without consulting me, I need to do the same thing with who? With her. And and that whole process then, God works. And then you need to put a value part on it. That this is all that my father will allow me to spend on this. And this is all that he allows me to spend. I won't go over that. And I hold myself to that. Because why? I'm a steward. It's not mine. It's his. And him and I got to work it out. You know. And sometimes when God says no, he is saying no because he got something better for me down here if I won't be anxious. He says be anxious for what? Nothing. Why? He knows what we have need of. He knows the delights of our hearts. He knows what we desire. And sometimes we just have to wait on him. And sometimes that's the testing period. Will I wait upon God to act? Will I wait upon God to do? Or do I just go do it? And I think a lot of us at this judgment seat, he's going to bring that up. You didn't wait on me. You went out there and just did your thing. But with your mouth, you were saying, I owned everything. You were saying, I was the Lord of your life. You were saying that I was the one in charge. But in reality, you were the one acting as though you were what? Totally in charge of everything that I blessed you with. And he says, boy, I've written it down. I know the date you bought it. I know the date you made up your mind that you was going to do it without me. I have it in the book of remembrance. You didn't even consult me. He said, a stroll of remembrance was written in the presence concerning those who feared the Lord. Now catch this last part. That's part I like. And honored his name. And honored his name. Well, Samuel says, if you honor him, he will do what? Honor you. If you honor him, if you put him first and really honor him in all your decisions and all that you're doing, he says, I'll honor you. And God's going to show you where you didn't honor him. You didn't respect his name. You didn't respect his lordship. You didn't respect him being the one in charge of your life. You just went on and did your thing. You don't lose your salvation, but he's going to really point it out. He's going to point it out. Now go to Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17. And verse 10. Look what he says. I have not run away from being your shepherd. Even though you do these things, and he's talking about you, I haven't stopped being your shepherd. But see, one of the things that have to happen, 
you have to be willing to want to be shepherd. How many of you have children that don't want to be children? Been grown ever since they were five years old. Have a smart mouth? Woo! They're going to tell you. And he said, you didn't want to be shepherd. You didn't want to be parented. You didn't want to be guided. You didn't want to be taught. He says, I have not run away from being your shepherd. You know I have not desired the day of despair. What passes my lips is open before you. Boy, what passes my lips is open before you. Now, come to verse 10. He says, I, the Lord, search the heart. Why? I'm the shepherd. In 16, I'm the shepherd. I have not ran away from being your shepherd. But I won't force you to go into these pastures. I'm the shepherd. I won't force you. And he goes on and he says, And have examined what? Your mind. I've examined your thoughts. You know, when you had that thought, but you did not put it under the captivity of Jesus Christ, and you allowed that thought to blossom, and that blossom came into sin because you would not put it under the blood of Christ. You would not stop it at your door. You just dwelt on it. You just concentrated on it. And you begin to follow the thoughts and plan. And he says, boy, I'm going to bring that up to you. How many of you like to sit down with parents? Some of you, you know, I used to, boy, when my mom would sit us down and my mom would remind us, remember when you did this? Remember when you did that? And we thought we had did something. But mom knew about what we had did. Sometimes we wonder, where did that information come from? Which one of us told? You know. And, and God says, I know what you're doing. I know your thoughts. And see, you're going to give account for those thoughts, how you dealt with them, how you managed them, what you did with them. And he, he says... Again, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind. For what purpose? To reward a man according to his what? His conduct. Why? For as a man thinketh, so will he perform. So will he do. And God says, he's going to reward us based on our conduct. He's going to reward us based on what kind of pastor I've been. There's a pastor who can, boy... Do right by the church, or there's a pastor that can take advantage of the church. There's a pastor that can teach the word, or a pastor who can thrill the ears and tickle the people, and so forth. And we can have laughter and fun. But the church is a place of learning. 
It's a place of education. The church takes the place of the synagogue in a sense in that it's an educational institution within the society to teach godly people how to live and serve God in a godly manner. The world's teaching one thing. The church is teaching something else. How do we grow up godly men? How do we grow up godly children? How do we do that? And that's some of the last things on people's mind. How to be holy. How to be godly. How to live in this world in a way that demonstrates God is in my life. And I want to glorify him. That that's my purpose. That's my desire. That's what I live for. For me to live, boy, is learning to die every day. But upon death, boy, is my reward because I am now with him. For me to live is Christ, but to die is what? Gain. And he says, he's going to reward me according to my conduct. So there at the judgment seat of Christ, he's going to reward us on how we have lived this life as Christians. How we have been obedient to the Holy Spirit. How we've been obedient to the Word of God. Now, understand this about the Word of God, because sometimes we all do it. You can't pick and choose out of the Word of God what you want to live by and what you want to follow. You got to take the sweet and the bitter together. You can't pick and choose it. You have to be willing to accept God's truth as God's truth. Even when it hurts and I don't want to do it. And it's like a bitter pill. And God is saying to you, you be this. One of the hardest things sometimes for me, boy, is when everything in me is raging against Elaine, and Christ says, love her as I love my church. Boy, everything... Because, see, her and I both have some ugliness left in us, you know. And even when sometimes when she don't want to submit... And boy, that mouth gets to go. That she comes back and she said, I, I can trust you. You do. You know. And that's submission. Why? Because scripture says that she should submit to who? Yeah. As unto who? Unto the Lord. Now, the good part about this is this. We both have to trust God in it. That's all. Okay. And, 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 and here he says, I'm going to judge you according to your conduct. I'm going to judge you on how you perform as a godly man, as a godly father, as a godly husband, as a godly citizen, as a godly employer. I'm going to judge you. Okay. Now go over to Jeremiah 32 and get to verse 19 with me. And, and, and listen to what he says. Because, boy, it, it can be difficult for us. So in 32.19, he says this here. 
Great are your purposes, and mighty are your deeds. Mighty are your deeds. Your eyes are open to all the ways of who? Of men. Your eyes can be open to all the ways of men. But as a Christian, you only have one way to what? To walk. To walk in that straight and narrow path of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The only way to walk is to follow Jesus. Not all the other different men, how they're doing, what they're doing. But are you keeping your eyes on Jesus, on his word, and are you following that? See, see, don't follow Pastor Brown. For Paul says, hey, if you follow me, don't get stuck on me. Look past me and see Jesus Christ. If you don't see Jesus Christ in Pastor Brown, don't even try to follow Pastor Brown. If you don't see Pastor Brown living out the Word of God, and that doesn't mean I don't stumble sometime, don't try to follow Pastor Brown. But fix your eyes on Jesus and see Him. And run after Him. Follow Him. Stay close to Him. Don't allow him to get a great distance between you and him. You want to be right here, step in step with him. You don't want to be way back somewhere. You want to be right here. And, and he says, great are your purposes and mighty are your deeds. Are your deeds mighty? Are the works you're doing, are they for the glory of Christ? Are they powerful works through the hands of the Holy Spirit? Or are they of flesh? And he goes on, he says, Your eyes are open to all the ways of men. Your reward, everyone, according to his, what again? The conduct. How you behave, how you live as a Christian. That is huge. What is going to be judged? When you get back into... Second uh, Corinthians 5, he already tells you, he makes it kind of very clear, but then very vague also. Because in the issue it says, what you have done while in the body, whether it's what? Good or bad. Now, in our season of life, that's sometimes which is good, we call it what? Bad. And that which is bad, we're living in a day that people call it what? Good. So it's all this confusion between good and bad unless you really understand Scripture. For every man seeth himself right in what? His own eyesight. And man's own eyesight, he'll call this good when God is saying it's bad. Then he'll take that which is bad for himself, for his family, for society, and he'll call that good. When it's really what? Bad. Let me give you an example of it that's going on right now. The transgender bathroom thing. Good or bad? It's what? It's bad, but we're calling it good. Because of the few people that we say that it will help or it will encourage or we won't be showing any despair with or 
prejudice towards. So we're calling it good. And in reality, it's bad because it goes against what God has said. Man and women. But we're calling it, boy, good. Some people are saying, great. Did you read in the paper the other day where this actress is bringing out a whole line of uh, clothing that is non-gender clothing? It, it won't be for men or, or women, but you buy it, either one can wear it. Men can uh, select certain dresses that is non-gender and women can select certain pants that are non-gender, and we wear certain clothes that are non-gender. Okay. And we want everything to be neutral. Now, understand something, because this is still going on even in the biblical principle. You want to take everything of a male figure about God and strip him of that in order that he is just seen as what? Without a gender, but yet everything in Scripture puts God mainly in the male figure. Now, understand, in reality, God is neither male nor female. But he reveals himself mainly in the male figure. We want to strip away all gender in the Bible. Now, if you don't have any gender, what rules govern what? You better go up there and open that door for me, Sister Brown. You better get that door. I got six inches of snow out on the ground. Sister Brown, you better go get that snow blower. We, we identify in our culture and society certain roles that are what? For the male and certain roles that are for the female. Now understand, those roles can cross. If I'm a bachelor, I'm doing the dishes. I'm doing the cooking. I'm doing all. I even did some washing this morning before I even came to church. I threw some stuff in the thing, put the soap in it and so forth. See, I can function. Hmm? And, and the whole pro- those roles can cross and they can help you know sometime when she's at choir she come in I didn't cleaned up the whole kitchen got everything washed put in the dishwasher got it going you know everything cleaned up now, I don't think I do all that without expecting a reward but it's all done <laughs> you know and He says for good or the bad. Now, very quickly, what is going to be judged? When will it take place? It has to take place after the resurrection. That's certain. Could not take place before the resurrection. Has to take place after the resurrection. Has to take place before Armageddon takes place because the wrath of God is poured out in the battle of Armageddon, and I'm not appointed to that wrath. So there, there's a little window for it in there. Now, what's going to be judged? Just very quickly. First, 
your faithfulness. The quality of your faithfulness. Is it worthy of God or worthless? Your faithfulness. Is it worthy of God's? Is it really worthy? See, illustrate that is, is, is in the marriage. Is the wife or the husband really worthy of the love or the respect that is given and shown them? Is my God really worthy of my service to him? And if he is, the faithfulness follows. When you deem something worthy, really worthy, really respectful, you're willing to follow it. If it really doesn't have any worth to you or real value, only you're, you're then only looking to use it. You're just looking to use it for a time, for a season. And when you see something that you use, there's also a throwaway date that you're just going to let it foot <laughs> because you don't need it anymore. Or you found something better. You're not going to find anything better than Jesus Christ. And the whole process is that your faithfulness to him. I think we're going to be at that judgment seat and the question is going to come. Have you been faithful? Listen to Joshua. For me and my house, we are going to do what? And guess what? We're not going to vote on it. (laughs) This is what's going to happen in our house. We're going to serve the Lord. We're going to serve the Lord. Now, I'm not going to ask you if you want to go to church. As long as you are under that roof, you are going to church. Now, when you no longer want to go to church, go find yourself a place that Satan provides for you. Because, see, God's provided this house. You just go find yourself a place. And if Satan will take care of you better than what God will, then you live under Satan's roof. So God is going to ask you about your faithfulness and the quality of your service. Is it really from the heart? Or is it really about self? Because saying John 6, 63 says the flesh, boy, profits what? Nothing. Second one, did you choose to build on a solid foundation? The scripture says there's no other foundation that has been laid than that. Of who? Of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, you make the choice. Are you going to build with wood, hay, and stubble? Or are you going to build wood? Gold, silver, precious stone. You got a choice of how you're going to build your house. You have the choice of what you're going to put in your house. Now, If you want roaches running all around your house and rats running all around your house, you leave the garbage there. 
I don't care how beautiful the outside might look. But you step on the inside, oh Lord! You open the door. Woo, I need some fresh air. Sometimes you open the door of people's lives and you got to get some fresh air. You open the door of people's life, you see all these critters running around like the daylight didn't hit it. Hey. What are you putting in your life? What are you putting in your head? Who are you believing or trusting? Hey. What are you doing? When you go shopping for furniture, do you go just shopping for junk or do you go shopping for good furniture? Yes, you want to value on furniture. But some furniture isn't worth bringing out the store. And you have to make that decision and that choice. Thirdly, did you continue to train yourself Did you continue to teach yourself? Did you get into God's word and study and show yourself approved? A workman rightly dividing God's word. Are you in a Bible study? Are are you in a home study? Are you listening and are you following somebody on radio or TV? Are you in his word? Are you continuing to build yourself? Are you strengthening yourself in the things of the Lord? Are you pumping his word every day? Are you building yourself? Are you continuing to train yourself? See, a lot of people who are athletes, they train every day. How many of you watch part of uh, Muhammad Ali? Even though under his condition, he still hit that bag. <laughs> yeah. He still do his little dance. Couldn't do it like he used, but he was still doing it. Because, like he said, he's a boxer. That's what boxers do. You're a Christian. And what Christians do, we get in the Word of God. And we pump it. We pump it. We pump it. Are you involved in good works? Because Ephesians says you were created for good works. And remember what it says back in Jeremiah? Your good deeds. What are the good works you're involved in? Now, understand this about a good work. A good work is usually not beneficial to who? To me, but to the individual's who I'm doing the work on the behalf of. Most of the times, we want the good work to do what? Benefit me. If it's no more than getting the praise of men, or being seen by men, or getting, but a good work, you don't even have to even be recognized that you're doing it. You just do it. You just do it. How many of you are involved in a good work or doing good deeds that is a blessing and a benefit to others? Last, 
Is your heart in it for the glory of God? That as you work at it, you're not working as unto man. You're not working for Pastor Brown. You're not working for elders. You're not working for deaconess group. You're not working for this group or that group in the church. But you're working for the Lord Jesus Christ. Every sacrifice you make, you're not making it to have your name put down somewhere. So-and-so sacrificed in doing this. You're not doing it to get your name on the plaque on the wall. You're not doing it to be recognized as the greatest usher or the greatest choir of this. Or the great. You're not doing it to get any recognition in and of yourself. You're just doing it from the heart for the glory of God. Get a little picture of what we're going to be judged about. Can you see some of it? Can you yourself see it in your own life? Because see, every one of us sitting here, we're going to appear, if we have named Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we're going to appear at the judgment seat of Christ. And we're going to be judged for what we've done in this body. Whether good or bad. And you will receive rewards or not receive rewards based on how you have lived for Christ. Boy. And it takes place before Armageddon. Because judgment has to begin first. Where at? In the house of God. Before he pours his wrath out on an unbelieving world. He deals with his own first. Father, we thank you and praise you, Lord, for meeting with us. And may we, O oh God, gurgitate the message. May we go back and search it out for ourselves. May we open the word and allow your Holy Spirit to minister.